those who wish to uh, be part of the questions, answer, Dhamma discussion session, please make your way back into the sala. Or please uh, do feel free to ask uh, any questions that would be, uh, uh, say, useful to explore in terms of what I was talking about. Uh, there's a, a wandering mic, so I would ask people to wait until the microphone arrives so that uh, you, uh, your voice can be heard by everybody. And uh, we can also record the questions so that uh, it helps things for, uh, for future uh, reference and uh, understanding. Sometimes you get a, a, long, a, a long answer, but people can't figure out what the question was. <laughs> so please do patiently wait for the microphone to arrive. So. Uh, if there's uh, things that would be useful for me to talk about further from the uh, the, the talk that I gave, then please uh, ask away freely. Okay. Yes, you. I'm loud enough. <laughs> but we can't record it without the microphone. All right, thank you. Okay, you know, everything arises, passes by, and I am not a self. So what does it mean by I am not a self, please? Well, the um, the Buddha uh, used this, um, say, the teaching on anatta as a way of looking at the mind's habits of identification. So usually we say, I am a person, I am a man, I am English, I am Indian, I am Sri Lankan, I am Thai, I am 60 years old, I am 30 years old, I am 40 years old. Uh, we make these everyday designations and uh, identify with our body, our personality, our nationality, you know, our mood. You know, I'm happy, I'm unhappy, I'm sick, I'm well. And this is a very matter-of-fact kind of identification. So the Buddha's teaching on anatta is a, a, a tool that can be used to help explore that and to see whether it's true or not. So that there's nowhere in the Pali Canon where the, where the Buddha can be found to say, there is no self, which is interesting. He never, he never says there is no self, but rather what the, the teachings on Anatta are pointing to is that the usual things that we consider to be who and what we are, our body, our personality, our life story, our moods, our opinions, um, when you look to find an owner, you can't find what that owner is where it is, that feeling of I-ness, uh, me-ness and minus. So it's a way of, in a sense, um, uh, breaking the illusions of habit that we have. And so it's a, an analytical method. So when you say, well, I'm the body, well, okay, what's the I that, uh, that is the... the uh, uh, the experiencer of the body or the owner of the body, what does that eye look like? Where is it? Can you find it? And so that that um, uh, it, it, that process is, say, um, what insight meditation is designed to clarify and to strengthen that way of recognizing with the habits of I am a body, I am a personality, I am uh, a man, I'm a woman, I'm old, I'm young, uh, and to see that those can only be relative truths. And that, uh, I mean, and that, and that, uh, a simple way of 
relating to it, Ajahn Chah would hold up something like this, something like this and say, is this short or is it long? If you're an ant, it's really long. If you're an elephant, it's really short. So is it short or long? The shortness or longness is added by the mind. It is what it is. It's a configuration of the four elements, but to call it short or long, or mine or yours, whatever, is, is what the mind adds to it. So the, the process of insight meditation and, say, the clarification of that quality of awareness is uh, <coughs> where the, um, it's, like it's illuminating the habits of identification, illuminating them, seeing um, what they're based on, and training the mind to let go of them. When you look for the real self, well, what, what am I really? <laughs> then that's why I find that that last teaching I referred to, the dialogue between the Buddha and Vachagota, that when the Buddha's talking about, in a way, his own subjective experience, trying to describe the Tathagata so that you can't, there's nothing you can describe it by. But yeah, it's profound, yeah, boundless, immeasurable, unfathomable. There, there's an isness, it's a quality, but you can't uh, use our ordinary thinking, our language or concepts to describe what that quality is, other than that it knows. <laughs> it's, it's awake, it's aware. So if you remember that, that dialogue, it's where the Buddha says um, uh, the, that material form, feeling, perception, mental formations of consciousness, or consciousness, whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata might describe him, has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned, in terms of material form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean. So again, to the thinking mind, it's sort of, but, 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 but what am I? <laughs> what, what, what is this thing that's aware? What is it? And that the, in that statement, the Buddha is saying, in a sense, that quality of knowing is the most real thing there is, but it's not really a thing in the way that we use the word normally. There's no language that can be used to describe it, no concept. There's another dialogue between the Buddha and um, uh, a young Brahmin student called Upasiva, where um, uh, <coughs> Upasiva is asking about what happens to an enlightened being at uh, the death of the body. And the Buddha says, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which could be spoken of is no more. You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being or phenomena have been, uh, have been removed, all means of description have gone too. One who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which could be spoken of is no more. So that, uh, so the, again, to the conceptualizing thinking mind, it's like, but, 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 <laughs> that's the way the mind frames the world, through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, language. But that's all based on time, space, you know, three-dimensional space, individual existence. And the Buddha is saying the reality is, is, uh, is beyond all of those habitual measurements and concepts, so don't try to conceive it. 
So it's, it's frustrating to the thinking mind, but liberating to the heart, I would suggest. Please, any other questions? <laughs> There's no doubts in the room? Yes. Um, is it the Tathagata then that is reincarnated? And if it isn't, then what is? Um, and also what happens to the Tathagata after the body fades away? The one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. <laughs> So that the the Buddha was absolutely uh, stoic uh, in say to un to respond to your second question first that there's nothing that can be said. Uh, there's a couple of comments where he says something like um, such a one has passed beyond the range of knowledge of gods and humans, and uh, or one uh, they have attained unutterable bliss. Those are the only two comments in the whole of the Pali Canon. That, uh, that the Buddha makes with regards to the experience of of what was once a yeah, a living being in in the realm of time and and existence after the uh, as an enlightened being after the death of the body, which is not a lot to hang things on. <laughs> but uh, I feel it's in, rather than trying to create a concept, oh, unutterable bliss. That sounds good. Oh, you know, I'll have some of that. <laughs> you know, you you kind of take a you borrow from your everyday experience something that's blissful or delightful, you know, that that perfect cup of tea, you know. Oh, yes! You know. <laughs> well, it's not like the perfect cup of tea, um, you know, a millionfold. It's it's a whole different uh, order. So that uh, I feel it's more... Uh, and it used to frustrate me a lot in the early days. I thought, but, 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 you must have said something. I mean, after all, all this effort to be enlightened, and then where do you go when it's all over? Well, wrong question. <laughs> And it's it amazing the number of times he's asked that question and he's absolutely, uh, say, uh, reliably non-cooperative. <laughs> he, he, he won't be drawn on it because he's saying, uh, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can, they can be measured. Like, if you're letting go of time, location, like where does that being go? Like awareness doesn't apply, being doesn't apply. The future, the past, the present doesn't apply. <laughs> if the, the mind is liberated from time, identity and location, there's nothing to hang anything. Our concepts are built out of time, space, individuality, personal experience. So the Buddha was... Because most spiritual traditions will come up with some kind of uh, metaphysical description. Uh, where, where, what happens to the, the, you know, the holy ones, you know? They get some kind of exalted super-duper heaven. You know. But he just, uh, amazingly enough, he saw right from the beginning, there's nothing you can say. and it's, So therefore, it's better to say nothing. And then he stuck to that through his whole 45-year teaching career. So in terms of what is reborn, the, the simple, I'm not very good at short answers, but the short answer is what gets reborn is habits. Good habits, bad habits, neutral habits. And uh, that whatever the mind is um, uh, irritated by, whatever it, it is, uh, it loves, whatever it hates, whatever is familiar to it, 
that's the direction that it'll be it will be drawn whatever is uh, the mind is not doesn't have a, a sense of um, say detachment from non-identification with it takes it as real that that really bad thing or that really good thing or that really familiar thing that that's the way the attention will, will be drawn and it, it also uh, one of Ajahn Chah's uh, very common teachings, and similarly Lumpur Sumato, would be um, rather than thinking about rebirth across lifetimes, it's also from one day to the next, or one moment to the next. You know, the, the things that irritated you yesterday are likely to irritate you tomorrow. Or even if, if they don't irritate you tomorrow, at least you remember, that used to really annoy me. You know, that has a, an effect. There's a, there's a resonance there. So the um, the, the process of rebirth doesn't have to be very mysterious you know the things that that you love the things that you hate like uh, i don't know where where did you come from where were you born um, ireland galway so so i would suspect if you hear an irish accent here in amravati your attention oh there's another irish voice where's she from and so the ear picks up the sound and that one person Amongst all these these people here, 50, 80 people gathered here. Oh, who's that? Because of your karma of having been born in Ireland, and that's your language, that's your people. So that familiarity, you know, someone who's got a Scottish accent won't have the same effect. Someone with a French accent won't have the same effect. So that's rebirth right there. <laughs> that's how it works. You know? And it's and so it doesn't have to be mysterious to us. The quality of awareness, the more that it is uh, identified with particular likes, dislikes, and familiarities, then that feeds the rebirth process. When the mind clearly sees the nature of all perceptions as they are and doesn't identify, is not entangled uh, with any particular perception or thought or concept, and it can knows them as they are, simply as... Uh, arising and passing away and not self, then that mind is not born. It's not doesn't identify with that. It's not it's not sort of sucked in in the same way. So <coughs> that um the uh the it's in a way it's not that the we are being reborn and it is stopping, but rather we appear to be being reborn <laughs> and the appearance is stopping. Does that make sense? So any other questions, thoughts, reflections? These afternoons are for you, not for me, so please don't don't be shy. Um, we just talk about the mind filled with defilement, great anger and delusion, and we're supposed to be aware of it. My question is when you find your awareness that your mind is intoxicated by one of those three. And in the process, it can take a long time. It can take one second before it go away, or it can linger for days. What is your suggestion we deal with that when we found our mind is intoxicated by one of those? Good question. <laughs> um, well, it's very, it's very interesting. When uh, the majority of Lumpur Sumato's teachings, uh, I would say, my experience, are 
around the, the third foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of mind states, Chitanupasana. And uh, so I haven't done the statistics on it exactly, but roughly speaking, that, that uh, he would teach about that area a lot. And um, particularly the, the quality of being mindful of, of our wholesome mind states and unwholesome mind states and not discriminating between them. If you if you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the uh, the, the third section Chitanupasana is really very short. But uh, wh- one of the interesting things, and that comes through Lumpur Sumedho's teachings over and over again, it's the simplicity and directness of it, because it says, uh, knowing the the agitated mind is agitated, the unagitated mind is unagitated. Knowing the mind filled with anger is filled with anger, the mind free of anger is free of anger. Yeah, the mind filled with lust is being filled with lust, the mind free of lust being free of lust. The mind filled with delusion is being filled with delusion, the mind free of delusion is free of delusion. There's no value judgment in the whole thing. They have these, I think it's uh, 16 pairs of qualities, if I remember correctly. And there's no value judgment. It never says freedom from anger is better than anger, <laughs> or that you know, freedom from agitation is better than, ag- uh, than, uh, than being agitated. In that particular instance, and in terms of the establishment of mindfulness, it's, there's no value judgment. It's just, it's just the, 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 the degree of mindfulness to know this is present. And that, that is the curative treatment. That's, the, that's the, 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 the factor that helps the mind to, to break free of that quality and to, to not be um, overwhelmed by it. So that the very fact that there can be the awareness, well, I'm really, I, I've been really angry for three days. <laughs> that which knows the anger is not angry. That which knows the agitation is not agitated. But during those process, the pain is still there, the, the, the burning is still there. So when we go through that process, what is the advice that you would give us? Just go through with it? Just. Well, patience is the most, uh, as the Buddha said, yes, kanti paramang tapo titika nibanang paramang vadanti buddha. Patient endurance is the supreme practice. Seriously, because, uh, and that's in a sense the, almost like the sort of national anthem of the forest tradition is patient endurance. Because it's that the pain is still there. You, know, the, the, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to give up anger today. Off it goes. Doesn't doesn't work that way. Yeah. From now on, no more lust. Okay. From today on, no more jealousy. It, you know, the the one sending out the command is not the one receiving the the the, the transmission. <laughs> so the the intention can be there, but the kind of karmic momentum behind those habits of, of anger or stress or, or whatever it might be. Um, that is driven by a whole different system, if you like. It's like it's, it's got a, a whole weight of habit and attachment identification behind it. So as it's being known, then the painfulness of it, of like, oh, my, it's so, you know, so stressful, such a burden, so heavy, being so annoyed all the time. <laughs> and that just feeling that, knowing that the, the, the results of that mind state, being patient with it, letting the results be felt, 
uh, and not trying to get rid of it, not waiting for it all to be over, but com that, that open-hearted surrender, okay, here it is, this is what it feels like. The more that the mind can be fully open in that way, then you are receiving the effects of past causes. What's been caught, I say the habits of anger or jealousy or fear or whatever. You can't undo those causes. They've already been caused. It's like, you can't, it's, it's happened in the past, you can't change it. So, in the present moment, opening the heart to say, this is the results of that habit. Ow. 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 <laughs> Uh, you can't undo the cause, but you can uh, you can affect the way that it's received in the present. Now, the more that there's an open-hearted acceptance of those the effects of those past causes, that open-heartedness creates causes in the present for peacefulness and clarity in the future. So it's a kind of two-part process in a way. So you can't undo what's already been done. But that's out of our control. It's like in that the ten qualities of the Buddha. The first quality of the ten powers of the Buddha, the Dasabala, is knowing what's possible and knowing what's impossible. So you can't uncause something that's already been caused. <laughs> so what we can, what is possible though, is to change the attitude towards that. And in that, then it's really essential to recognize we can experience pain without creating suffering out of it. The dukkha is one th one thing, the, the painful feeling is one thing, and what the mind makes of it is completely separate. So the dukkha that is brought to the uh, brought to an end by the four noble truths and the and the uh, the eightfold path yeah, is the second kind. The you can't stop the pain of what's already been caused. You've been born, right? As a body, as a mind, you're alive. Ergo, it's going to hurt. There's going to be pain because we've been born. We have a body, we have a nervous system, we have a mind. Therefore, pain is going to arise. You can't uncause that. But you can change the, the way that, that the, those, if the effects of those causes are received. And the more that, that there's that open-heartedness, so, oh, this is just, I have a body, I have a mind, so it gets sick. Like, like yesterday, it's kind of my nose streaming and kind of... Uh, feeling uh, sickly, then, well, yeah, you have a body, duh, it's going to get ill sometimes. You know, that's just part of the course. If you think it shouldn't be that way, you create dukkha. And so the, the Buddha said the, the first kind of, of dukkha is unavoidable. No one can dodge that. That arrow is the image he used. Like that, that arrow hits everybody. But the second arrow is... What the, the mind adds to it. Shouldn't be this way. When's it going to be over? This isn't fair. What can I do to get away from this? That, all that fretting, negotiating, stressing is the second arrow, which is the, <clears throat> the suffering that we create around a particular feeling. So that when we have a, like a, a painful emotional habit, uh, then patience, to patiently receiving the, the effects of that and also, the, uh, what I find is the more fully we accept the painful consequences, ow, and the, more, and the less commentary we make about it, the more it's just that the, the, let it be felt fully and completely, then the more that the message gets through, the more we're, 
we're disinclined to create the causes for that to happen in the future. If we if we get too busy with it, like oh, I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't be feeling this. How can I stop this happening? Oh, it's my stupid fault. You know, it's because I did this, this, and this, and I shouldn't do that. We can get sincerely kind of involved and busy with it, but rather like I was saying about me and my problem, that unwittingly we can be creating more and more causes. How can I get rid of this? I shouldn't be this way. I'm supposed to be a monk. I shouldn't have these feelings. You know, I should love everybody instead of being really irritated. Um, then the more commentary you make and the more busyness you create that is created around that that dukkha feeling, then the more that the mind tends to create this is me and my problem. Or it creates that sense of uh, how can I get rid of this? So uh, my experience is that the simpler we keep it, when you know, there's a, a acknowledgement of the painful effects of some habit, uh, then the more effectively it helps the, the, the habit to, to come to an end. Um, can uh, certain or can meditation give insight into what? Uh, an enlightened mind uh, might experience. I'm, so I'm thinking sort of in this world, in our lives. And uh, what I was thinking of was, um, I think there's a, um, a form of one of the jhanas called um, cessation of feeling and uh, thinking. So uh, um, Niroda Samapata. Um, and I was wondering more generally uh, whether in terms of what it's like to have an enlightened mind, whether uh, certain meditations can give some f some flavor or insight into that. I would say yes, but I, I, would, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily connected to the cessation of perception and feeling. If all arahants didn't feel or perceive anything, there wouldn't have been very many teachings given. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Buddha was an arahant, he was totally enlightened. He did a lot of, of, of talking and walking, decision-making. Uh, he was an extremely creative um, person. And so that uh, it's a mistake to think the, the enlightened mind is, is uh, sort of dissociated from the realm of, of uh, perception and feeling uh, in, intrinsically. And that's one particular level of, uh, of uh, say, concentration. But it's, I would say, and following along from the, the teachings of, uh, say, uh, Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Buddha Dasa, that in the experience of Nibbana, experience of, of the enlightened mind, is much more accessible than we realize. And that when the, when the mind is free of grasping, is free of, of identification, as the Buddha said, that is Nibbana here and now. When the, when the heart is free of the conceit, I am, that is Nibbana here and now. So that's not some sort of cosmic kind of flashbang event at the sort of at the uh, some kind of a, a great enlightenment moment only, but it's like uh, Ajahn Buddha Das would emphasize this a lot. He he said there's this what you can call a momentary nibbana or tadangana nibbana, a momentary nibbana. Whenever the mind is aware and free of conceit. It, it, that right there is the experience of Nibbāna. When there's a letting go of I and me and mine, then in that moment, when the heart is free of grasping, 
then there is the experience of of, uh, of clarity, of peacefulness, of, of selflessness, of complete simplicity. It's not an ecstatic state. It's a it's a, a clear state, and so that uh, I would say that it's it's highly possible to experience that for you know, most people. And sometimes it's when people least expect it. When they can often when they stop meditating, <laughs> when the bell goes and you go, ah, and there's suddenly me, not me practicing. <laughs> All the conditions are there. The mind is has been awake. There's a uh, but the me doing some me practicing to be some way is often an, a, a kind of obstruction, a subtle obstruction. But oftentimes, the most peaceful moment of the meditation, not just because people know their knees are going to be released from prison, but but uh, oftentimes, if you if you notice, often it's when the you have the and then the, oh, the meditation's over. <sighs> That's the most peaceful moment. I would. I've noticed myself. <laughs> I'm usually doing the bell rings. It doesn't quite work in the same way, but but it, it's. Uh, I, I feel this is a very important teaching. There's a a, a short passage um, where the the Buddha says that the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. Or also the um, the uh, nibbana is the cessation of becoming. And that when and so uh, it can sound again like a, some sort of dramatic event, like a kind of grand, super duper enlightenment experience. But uh, uh, if you notice in meditation, uh, when the the mind is is grasping something, is caught up with a thought or a sound or a feeling, and then the mind simply relaxes, like say I'm, I'm grasping this bell striker, so the mind is like just as if it was grasping a thought or a feeling. And it's clinging to it, and there's a sense of tension, agitation. And then there's noticing, oh, I'm really hanging on to this tightly. Then, oh, well, why not just relax? And then that, you don't have to throw it away, but just relaxing the grip. <sighs> it's still holding it, but the mind is, is free of grasping. So that kind of temporary nibbana or that um, tadangana vimuti it's also called that temporary liberation it's it's there whenever the mind is free of grasping and the the, the greater the, the freedom the the deeper and the greater the degree of freedom from grasping then the more substantial uh, and lasting that will be but even if it's momentary just in that uh, noticing that the mind's caught up with a sound or a, or a feeling or a sensation and then just that relaxing of the of the the grip just that ah. even if it's just for a second or half a second if you pay attention there's in that moment the mind is awake there's no sense of identity there's a complete simplicity there's no thing wrong no thing to do before okay back to the breath <laughs> i should be in a sense before all those i shoulds or get on with the practice in that moment of of relaxation, there is the mind aware of the present. It's not a person. It's not a thing. There's no inside or outside. It's just this field of experience. The mind is is awake. And then, if uh, if we if attention is brought to that, then then it can be seen. Oh, that's 
that's accessible a lot of the time. <laughs> so it's not some kind of like super profound meditation experience. So like the uh, that uh, quality of niroda samapati that's only supposed to be realizable by anagamis and arahants anyway. You'd have to be a non-returner to reach that level of concentration. <laughs> but rather, it's the um, the mind being free of grasping, even though sense objects might be present, that uh, I would say is the real taste of, of Nibbana, or the taste of the enlightened mind. Thank you very much, Mante, for the very valuable Dhamma talk. And something I was pondering, throughout my youth was is there like a connection between the Buddha's awareness, the universal awareness of Lord Buddha and the awareness we we gain in our life? Is there a kind of a connection when when we attain to some connect awareness, then that awareness have a kind of a connection with the awareness of Lord Buddha. It's like something like that. I Something something was kind of pondering in my mind for some time. Well, if uh, if every aspect of the mind and the body is an aspect of Dhamma, Dhamma is nature, then the nature that comprises the Buddha's body and mind, how could that be separate or different from the nature that comprises your body and mind? There are, there's one natural order, so that insofar as every aspect of your physical mental being is is an aspect of, of Dhamma and every aspect of the Buddha's nature and being is the aspect of Dhamma, then there's an intrinsic relatedness on that level. The uh, <coughs> I mean, people like the idea of sort of uh, a kind of a connection with a with a kind of deity. That you've got a kind of cable, an Ethernet, you know, link. <laughs> To the Buddha, but I feel it, it's more profound than that. It's more and more complete. Because uh, if you if you just take a, that as a principle, that every aspect of my body and mind is an aspect of Dhamma. So my mind, I, I, when I look at my mind, I think of my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, my fears, my uh, my busyness, and I think that's who I am. But that's just the surface waves. If you consider the very fabric of your mind is Dhamma. Then uh, the the Dhamma is not is something not there's something not something separate or remote or far away. It's waking up to what's already here, so seeing beyond the surface level of the the waves uh, that uh, that that cause you know sumit region of the universe. <laughs> But very uh, well, everything that I am, this this mind is dhamma. There isn't, you know, the mind is not really a person. I, I make it all very personal. I say, I am Ajnamaro. I am a person. I'm a, I'm a man. I'm English. I'm a Buddhist monk. That's what I am. And we make it very personal. But every uh, every one of those thoughts or words is just uh, an aspect of nature. You know, the sounds that the, that the mouth forms, the concepts that the mind forms. They are just patterns of nature arising and passing away, known by, known by this awareness, which is also an aspect of nature. So that 
when when I I make a comment like every aspect is there an aspect of your body and mind that is not part of nature? I say, oh yeah, right. It sounds like a little kind of oh yeah, yeah, interesting fact. But if you really let that sink in, it's like oh, this mind is dhamma. Oh. <laughs> I tend to think of me, who likes, who dislikes, who wants, who doesn't want, has got to get this or doesn't want to have that. And we, we, we get so fixed, the, the attention gets so fixated on the surface that we don't look at the very fabric. That, and when we take refuge in Dhamma, it's like and, you know, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, in a way it's, it's reminding ourselves what's below the surface. That the, the fabric of reality is Dhamma, of not just reality of the world around us, but this body, this mind, everything that we are, the fabric of it is, is Dhamma, the substance. Buddha arises from the Dhamma, so that you can say the, the primary activity of that, that quality, the primary activity of Dhamma is awareness. The Buddha arises from the Dhamma, or the, that... Uh, primary activity or the, the, the fundamental uh, activity or function of Dhamma is awareness, is knowing. And when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha. So when the awake mind sees the way things are, then, that, then what arises is harmonious action. So that, you know, I say your connection with the Buddha is that we're, you know, we're all made of the same stuff. <laughs> it's not like a, an Ethernet cable to plugging this Sumit being into the Siddhartha Gautama being, yeah, but rather these are just, uh, you know, these lives are just waves on the ocean. So the ocean is all just the same salty water. The different shape of a wave and which way they move is just the, the shape of our particular lives. But the uh, the fundamental... Uh, reality of what we are, what everything is, is the, the same, is that same reality, the same Dhamma. And on that note, I think that's probably enough for today. So thank you for your good questions and your attention. And uh, I think the uh, theme for next week is mind is what matters, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Suvira? Yeah. Mind is what matters. So uh, we'll pursue some more of these themes in a useful way, I hope. So go well. <laughs>